You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The group behind the WePro attack has been active since 2015. Office 365 are still being targeted by account takeover attacks. A third-party Android app store is serving malware. The U.K. defense secretary has been sacked over leaked information. The U.S. warned Russia to cease its support of Venezuela's Chavista regime. Russia's Internet Sovereignty Bill is signed into law. And notes on the Global Cyber Innovation Summit. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. Flashpoint reveals finding from its inquiry into the attack on IT outsourcing and consulting company WePro. The threat actors behind it have been active since 2015. A URL in a phishing document led researchers to infrastructure used in previous attack campaigns. The goal of the WePro attack and subsequent attacks against WePro's customers appears to be gift card fraud. Flashpoint says the attackers were seeking access to the portals that manage gift cards and rewards programs at the targeted organizations. Barracuda is the latest to point out active attacks against users of Microsoft Office 365. Account takeover attacks surged during March. The attackers are opportunistic. Brute forcing, credential stuffing, and social engineering are all in play. Zscaler warns against a third-party Android app store seemingly specializing in games. It's simply a front for a campaign to install malware into two trusting victims' devices. The smart content store isn't a smart place to shop and doesn't even offer real content. If you try to download Crazy Birds or Super Bros Run, you won't even get a trojanized game. All you'll install is malware. The Times reports that UK Defence Secretary Williamson has been fired after investigation indicated he was the cabinet member who talked out of school about Huawei. Prime Minister Theresa May said that, quote, no other credible version of events to explain this leak has been identified, end quote. Williamson denies the claims and blames his sacking on a kangaroo court rigged by mandarins who had it in for him. He'll be succeeded by Penny Mordaunt. After a failed attempt by Venezuela's constitutional acting president to oust President Maduro failed, the Times reports that the U.S. has warned Russia not to continue attempts to prop up the Chavista regime. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Tuesday accused Russia of persuading Maduro to abandon his plan to flee to Cuba. Russian President Vladimir Putin yesterday signed into law a bill which will see Russia develop an independent Internet infrastructure. The law is meant to ensure that the country can stay online in case its adversaries decide to cut it off from the global Internet. Internet service providers will have to install special equipment supplied by the Russian government, which will enable them to rely on Russia's alternative DNS and route all traffic through local servers when the government deems it necessary. 
Most observers assume that the more practical uses of the law will involve censorship and traffic monitoring, although Moscow denies this. The law isn't popular among the Russian people. ZDNet cites a recent poll that found only 23% of Russians support the measure. Security operations centers, or SOCs, continue to develop and evolve in their scope and complexity, with many organizations adopting a more collaborative approach. Cody Cornell is co-founder and CEO at Swimlane, a security orchestration automation and response firm, and he joins us to help explain. SOC is a security operations center, so basically a group of individuals, uh, sometimes analysts, sometimes analysts and engineers, uh, that are responsible for you know monitoring the security posture of an organization. So uh, we spend a lot of uh, resources on threat detection and threat monitoring of our technologies, and those alerts have to go to somebody, and that's typically the SOC. At what point in an organization's life cycle do they typically stand up their own SOC? Organizations really differ in when they decide it's important, right? We see you know really large organizations that you would typically expect to have uh, a lot of security analysts and a large SOC, uh, really not, uh, either using managed services uh, or doing it, you know, with a few people. And then you have, you know, sometimes a smaller organization that is, you know, maybe the IP intellectual property is the, the backbone of their organization. They'll invest heavily in a security operations center uh, in an early phase. So, you know, typically it's, you know, mid-sized to larger organizations that have a dedicated stock, but you see that across the spectrum of, of different organizations and different sizes. Hmm. So today we're focusing on this notion of collaborative SOCs. Uh, what's the differentiator there? Historically, we've seen, you know, organizations move towards a little bit more sharing, right? So threat intelligence sharing and things along those lines. Organizations really will benefit from the fact that, you know, one group of people, no matter how big it is, if it's 10, 20, 50, 100 people, really don't have a monopoly on all the good ways to thwart uh, adversaries. And the ability for them to collaborate across organizations on what they're seeing and how they're responding uh, really, you know, enables, you know, organizations that may be competitive in the marketplace uh, actually collaborate on security and, and really help the whole uh, security you know, operations function across organizations. Now, is there a natural resistance there? I can imagine uh, organizations, especially when it comes to interacting with their competitors, that they might want to keep their cards close to their vest. I think there's, there's a tendency to think that that's the case, but we see if it's banks or uh, retail organizations or a broad a variety of verticals actually collaborate. Uh, you see a lot of collaboration in the government. You see a lot of collaboration in the energy and utility sector. Uh, you know, do they share everything? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, but, you know, how I'm detecting something, how I'm responding to it, you know, what the good sources for investigation information are, those are all things that we see people sharing across organizations, regardless of their competitive. I think most verticals at this point have established an ISAC, uh, you know, so an information sharing organization around threat intelligence. I think that's maturing a lot to include what, you know, is typically called a course of action. So what to do when we see bad. And, you know, I think that's a great place to start. Obviously, a lot of the uh, vendors in the community have started uh, building communities within their, their product stacks and their portfolios. And I think that's a great place to contribute. And then all the classic places that, that people contribute, if it's GitHub or otherwise, there's, there's lots of resources out there for, for contributing and collaborating. Are there any misconceptions that people have that you run across when it comes to this sort of collaboration? I think there's a kind of a misnomer that people aren't excited to share or uh, that people aren't willing to share. And I, I think that's uh, that's actually not the case. There, there's a lot of organizations that, you know, they're investing heavily in protecting their organization, but they understand that sharing is a, a raising tides, raises all ships moment for them. And the ability to share and uh, collaborate on how to do things and how to respond and how to build playbooks and all these things 
uh, are really enabling organizations to do more uh, with the same amount of resources. And I think uh, the, the fact that that's, that's coming to fruition is a surprise to some folks who haven't seen that historically. That's Cody Cornell from Swimlane. Today is the second and final day of the Global Cyber Innovation Summit in Baltimore's Fells Point. If yesterday's focus was on security technology, today's is much more on the threat. Author and cybersecurity expert Richard Clark opened the conference this morning with a discussion about some of the conclusions he reached in his forthcoming book, Fifth Domain. He observed that his earlier book, Cyber War, written with Robert Kanake and published in 2010, had drawn scoffing reviews as being nothing more than alarmist fiction. He noted with satisfaction that much of what they predicted, especially their claim that we'd soon see the rise of military offensive operations in cyberspace, including attacks on infrastructure, had been borne out by the events of the last few years. But, interestingly, he wanted to draw attention to some of the positive developments that he and his co-author did not foresee. Specifically, he argued that the last few years had shown that existing technology properly applied can indeed defend the corporate network. He has seen that appropriate levels of investment in cybersecurity by corporate leadership that understands the risk to the company can make security a priority, and when that happens, companies are generally successful in fending off attacks. And he argued that companies should defend themselves and not expect Cyber Command or other elements of the U.S. military to protect them in cyberspace. He offered a sourly realistic review of military failures to protect their own weapons and networks, and suggested that this argued that the military is not the place to look for defense of the private sector. He did note language in a recent Defense Authorization Act that observed that the U.S. military was authorized, in effect, to hack adversary systems in peacetime. And he viewed this as a positive sign that the government lawyers, as he characterized them, who had regarded such offensive cyber action as illegal under Title X, have been effectively overruled. He said, quote, now there's every reason to think Cyber Command is doing that. They weren't doing that before. Quote. He closed with general observations on conflict and with a plea for an understanding of how the federal government can help. Reflecting on his early career in nuclear arms control negotiation, he remarked that, quote, crisis instability comes when an aggressor thinks it can win, end quote. When the offense thinks it has an advantage and the defense is incredible, you're in a dangerous phase. He saw three areas in which federal action can make a positive contribution. First, appropriate regulation, particularly in electrical power and election security. Clark sees the potential for regulation to have the sort of positive effects he argued it had on the financial sector. Second, investment in research, particularly in defense artificial intelligence and machine learning. And third, in diplomacy. There were some genuine achievements in arms control during the Cold War, and Clark thinks there are reasons to hope for comparable diplomatic success with respect to cyber conflict. We'll have more accounts of the summit's proceedings over the next several days. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. 
Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, it's great to have you back. Uh, I saw an article uh, from Slate recently. It was called Give Up the Ghost, and it was about a plan in the U.K. to uh, break encryption or, or add, I guess, a backdoor to encryption. And they're referring to uh, something called ghost encryption. What's going on here? So as we know, there's a lot of discussion uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. and in Australia and other countries as well about the extent to which uh, products offering encryption should be weakened in order to allow this uh, special access for uh, law enforcement. And I guess what's going on here is that there's been a new proposal about a way to try to allow access to certain conversations by law enforcement officials uh, without necessarily weakening encryption on the whole. And uh, it's sort of an interesting idea. What, what seems They didn't put technical details out, so it's just kind of a high-level sketch of what they're thinking. But it seems like what they're talking about is something that would not weaken encryption for all conversations that people are having, but basically allow them to uh, choose a specific sender or, or receiver and weaken conversations that that person is having with other people. And so that could be perhaps a way to try to strike a balance uh, between the needs both for for uh, encryption in general, but also for this access when needed. So is this a situation where, uh, say, law enforcement would need to uh, do the equivalent of, of asking a judge for a warrant, and then this different kind of encryption would be put into motion so that they could then decrypt things? Yeah, something like that. So that's my understanding, is that they would have to get uh, get a warrant, and then they would approach the company, actually, that's providing the platform where this communication is being done. And then they would essentially ask this platform to uh, weaken the encryption or weaken the protocol uh, being used for some particular pair of sender and receiver. And that way it would allow law enforcement to target that particular conversation without necessarily degrading security for the other conversations taking place. Hmm. And in terms of the actual encryption going on there, uh, what's your take on this? Is this, is this a good compromise? 
Well, it's a compromise. I'll say that. Whether it's a good compromise or not uh, depends on the details. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think certainly it's a it, it does uh, at least partly address some of the concerns that people have raised with other proposals, uh, namely that they would weaken encryption for everybody. And if the uh, single master key falls into the wrong hands, then it could potentially be disastrous. Uh, here, it looks like there is no central master key to be stolen. Uh, rather, it does depend on trusting the company, trusting this, this company providing the service, that they will only weaken encryption when specifically requested with a warrant in place and otherwise would leave other conversations alone. So you're putting a little bit more trust in the company, but nevertheless, it represents maybe just a different point on the spectrum, uh, perhaps striking a better balance than other proposals. Yeah, and I guess with all these things, the devil's in the details. Yeah, that's right. It obviously depends a lot on how exactly the process is managed and what the technical details are when they come to light. Well, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.